Hello, this is Tommy Peeler, and welcome to our podcast, Carefully Examining the Text. Today, we want to examine Psalm 65. As we look at Psalm 65, we're going to break Psalm 65 up into three sections. As one writer says, this psalm is a three-act play. And the first covers verses 1 through 4. The heading of Psalm 65 says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. The first verse, There will be silence before you, and praise in Zion, O God. And to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Now, right as we begin Psalm 65, there is a translation question. I read from the New American Standard Bible, and it had the words, there will be silence before you. But this is translated quite a bit differently in some other versions. For example, the King James, praise waiteth for thee. Praise is due you, the ESV. And the NIV, praise awaits you, O God. Let me briefly explain why some of these translation differences occur. When you have a copy of a writing in the same language of the original, it's called a manuscript. The Old Testament originally written in Hebrew, and the best Hebrew manuscripts that we have have the idea of the New American Standard. There will be silence before you. A translation is a translation from the original Hebrew into another language. The Septuagint is the Greek translation. The Vulgate is the uh, Latin translation. And there are other ancient translations. And one of the reasons there's a difference here is because while the Hebrew manuscripts have silence will be before you, similar to the New American Standard, the Septuagint and the Vulgate have the idea that praise is due you and praise awaits you. So some of the differences in translations are because of the differences between the ancient Hebrew manuscripts and the translations, the oldest translations that we have in other languages of uh, these words. But, but let's talk, talk about that concept of there will be silence before you. We're, we're familiar that God is due praise, but, but what about that idea of silence? One writer said that after the laments of Psalms 51 through 64, the cessation of lament is itself praise of God. Another wrote, it may sometimes be the height of worship to fall silent before God and in awe of his presence in submission to his will. 
we are silent before him. There will be silence before you. And praise in Zion, O God. Psalms 46 and Psalm 48 are sometimes called songs of Zion as they celebrate Zion, the city of God. And this is the place where God's name is praised and vows to God are performed. We've seen the idea of vows to God in several of the Psalms that we've studied recently, Psalm 50, verse 14, Psalm 56, verse 12, Psalm 61, verse 8, and we'll also see it, Lord willing, when we get to Psalm 66. But performing vows before God was an important part of Old Testament worship, and it's a type of peace offering, a votive offering. There will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed. O you who hear prayer. And isn't that an interesting description of God? God is one who hears prayer. O you who hear prayer, to you all men come. All men come. I want you to pay attention to the universal note the notes that are sounded in Psalm 65, to you all men come. Verse 3, iniquities prevail against me. The Hebrew word for a mighty man um, or is used of God's might in Psalm 65 verse 6. God is said to be girded with might. But it's interesting, this word is used as a verb in verse 3. Iniquities prevail against me. The picture is that sin has conquered David. Sin has defeated him at some point. But he emphasizes in verse 3, But as for our transgressions, you forgive them. There's special emphasis on the pronoun you you, you forgive them. While iniquity prevailed against David, it is God's mercy and grace that has forgiven him. This particular word for forgiveness is only found three times in the Psalms. Outside of this verse, Psalm 65, 3, it's found in Psalm 78, verse 38, and Psalm 79, and verse 9. In each case, it is emphasized that God forgives. Maybe the abundant harvest that's described later in the psalm has come as a result of the people repenting and turning to God and God graciously forgiving their sins. But it is a wonder that God forgives, and it is something that we should stand in awe of. In verse 4, how blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you. It is God's prerogative as to who he chooses to bring near to himself. 
Much of the language of choosing and bringing near is found in Numbers 16 through 18, as those chapters emphasize God choosing Levi and bringing them near, bringing them close to himself. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. How blessed is the person who gets constantly to serve God at his house. And the text emphasizes, we'll be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So verses 1 through 4 describe people coming to Zion to praise, coming to serve in his courts, and experiencing the forgiveness of sins. In the second act of Psalm 53, verses 5 through 8 reads as this way, By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who steals the roaring of the sea, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples, those who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. We mentioned the universal notes in this psalm. In verse 2, to you all men come. In verse 5, you are the trust, or some of your versions have hope, of all the ends of the earth, of the furthest sea. God is the hope of all men everywhere. He is the one who heeds and answers prayer. In verse 8, those who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. And particularly in this context, some indications of God's power and God's presence that are mentioned are the mountains. Mountains in verse 6 are a picture throughout the Bible of strength and stability, of something that is reliable and dependable. And the reliability and dependability of mountains is only a small picture of God's power, stability, and reliability. He establishes the mountains with strength, and he girds himself with might. In verse 7, he steals the roaring of the seas. We find a similar word in Psalm 89, Psalm 89 and verse 9. There the Bible tells us, You rule the swelling of the seas when its waves rise. You steal them. You find similar words in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. God is the one who quiets the winds and the waves. So God shows his power in the mighty mountains. He shows his power in calming the roaring seas. And all who dwell in the earth stand in awe of the signs of God. Verses 9 through 13 emphasize that God is responsible for the fruitful fields and the abundant harvest. You visit the earth 
and cause it to overflow, verse 9 says. You greatly enrich it. Enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You you soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. This has similarities to Psalm 104, but God is pictured as the one who visits the earth. The word visit used in verse 9, the Hebrew word, sometimes refers to God bringing judgment or God bringing deliverance. Here, it is closer to the latter. God is blessing and God is visiting the earth and enriching it. It says, you prepare the grain, for you prepare the earth. The best farmers must prepare the soil and work with it. And here in verse 9, what you see is that God does great things to prepare the soil, to prepare the world, to produce crops in order to feed us. In Canaanite religion, Many people believe that it was Baal who provided the rain and the abundant harvest. Hosea 2 gives us a picture of how some of the people, even in Israel, thanked Baal for abundant harvest. And in 1 Kings 17 through 19, Elijah challenges Ahab, whose wife was a dedicated worshiper of Baal, as to the fact the Lord is in control of rain not Baal. But notice in these verses, God is the cause of every blessing. God visits the earth. God causes it to overflow. The streams are full and the grain is prepared by God. God waters the earth and softens its ridges in order to crown the year with his bounty and his blessings. And and notice in verse 11 that all God's paths drip fatness. It is interesting that one writer says when kings in the ancient near, world, ancient near East traveled to a place in the world, when they did this often because the king received the best of everything, the local people were deprived of possessions because of the king's presence. But that is not true of our king, for wherever he goes, the blessings are left behind. Your paths drip with fatness. In verse 12, the pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The hills, the valleys, are filled with pastures with, 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 and filled with flocks. And they are pictured as shouting and celebrating all the mighty work that God has done in creation. Now, I'm sure there was a lot more of Psalm 65 that we needed to emphasize than what we did. But how does Psalm 65 help us to appreciate Jesus? 
I would say to us that Jesus fulfills the picture of God in Psalm 65. How is that? You notice in verse 3, we stated that the you is emphatic. You forgive them. God's mercy, God's grace results in God's forgiveness. You forgive them. We stated that the word forgiveness is only used three times in the Psalms, and each time there's a heavy emphasis on the fact that it is the Lord who forgives. No wonder when there was a man let down from the roof in front of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, that some of the scribes and Pharisees questioned, who can forgive sins but God alone? Is their assumption there incorrect? Only God can forgive sins. They're wrong, not in that statement, but they're wrong in their estimation of Jesus. Jesus said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say the paralyzed man arise and walk? But so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, I say to the paralyzed, get up and take up your mat and walk. And he got up and walked. Yes, only God can forgive sins, but the fact that Jesus tells the paralyzed man to walk shows he can forgive. And it shows us that he is God come in the flesh. You forgive sins. Mark 2, 1 through 12. And we see the same discussion in Luke 7, verses 48 and 49. And God is pictured in Psalm 65 and verse 7 as stilling the roaring of the sea. Indeed, Jesus was confronted with the storm in Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. And he rises up in the midst of this fierce storm, which is threatening the disciples, some of whom are professional fishermen. And Jesus says to the storm, Be still. And the storms are still. Jesus stills the roaring of the seas. In verse 8, the Bible says, All who dwell in the earth stand in awe of your signs. The word for signs that's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, is the word that's used in the Gospel of John to describe the miracles of Jesus. Of Jesus opening the eyes of a man born blind. Of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Truly all the earth stands in awe of his signs. Jesus fulfills the picture of the God of Psalm 65 by forgiving sin, by forgiving sin, by quieting the winds and the waves, and by performing signs that leave the world in awe. But I want you to notice that verse in verse 6, that God is girded with might. God is girded with might. And certainly that is true in Jesus. And it's true in each of those signs that he did. But I want to tell you another time Jesus girded himself. 
this one who was able to quiet the seas, this one who was able to forgive sins, this one who was able to perform signs that left the world in awe. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus eats with his disciples and pours water into a basin and took a towel and girded himself. The towel was girded around his waist. You read these words in John 13, verses 4 and 5. The one who could forgive sins, the one who could perform signs that left the world in awe, the one who could quiet the winds and waves, the one who was girded with strength, girded himself with a towel to do the lowly act of washing the disciples' feet. One writer said of John 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet that there's no example in Greek or Roman literature of any other superior washing the feet of an inferior. But Jesus, the one girded with might, girded himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. This is a God who, with all his power, has served us. He served us in the washing of feet, and he served us in his death on the cross. May the Lord keep you and bless you.